Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings, I'm Tricia Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is a special mini-series in landscape architecture. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And today's guest is Simon Bell. His book is Elements of Visual Design in the Landscape, 3rd Edition, published by Routledge in 2020. Hi, Simon. Welcome to the show. Hello. Very nice to be here. Yes. So, Simon, uh, let's start with tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, um, I started life as a forester back in the the 1970s. uh, And um, shortly into my forestry career, I changed into being a landscape architect by doing a graduate program in the University of Edinburgh. I'd uh, previously studied in uh, Bangor in North Wales. And I was working at the time for the British Forestry Commission. and. We had a lot of interest in uh, developing, designing forests in those days. And this was because all the forests in the UK are artificial, basically, because we cleared all the forests away hundreds of years ago. And we were planting these um, forests in very strange-looking patterns of straight lines and square edges of patches on mountainsides in very beautiful scenery in Scotland and Wales and the north of England and so on. And people started objecting to them. So the Forestry Commission wanted to uh, develop how to design the landscape of these forests. And they followed a very famous landscape architect, James Sylvia Crow from Britain uh, in the 60s and 70s. And I was recruited in the very early 1980s to start working on this and uh, was given the education actually provided and paid for by the Forestry Commission. And it was at that time... um, that we were getting into uh, designing and having to persuade and, well, educate or train foresters and forestry engineers about aesthetics. So this was the very first part of my career. Um, And for 20 years, actually, I worked at the Forestry Commission, developing this program through the 80s. In the 90s, it kind of went international, and I got a lot of interest in this whole idea of designing forests from the U.S., from the Pacific West Coast part of the U.S. Forest Service, from companies in the U.S. and in Canada, British Columbia, also in Ireland and uh, various other countries. And uh, in the end of the 1990s, I went into academia and consultancy and then found myself in the University of Edinburgh uh, doing research and then doing teaching and also from 2005 in Estonia, uh, in the Baltic countries, Um, starting teaching, and I took over being the head of the department in 2009, yes, and uh, I'm still still here. So I split my time between the University of Edinburgh and uh, the University, the Estonian University of Life Sciences here in Tartu, Estonia, where I'm speaking from. And so this background to um, this forestry side of things actually was the genesis of the book of Elements of Visual Design in the Landscape. And as I mentioned, when we started 
teaching foresters about how to design forests, and of course, foresters being very practical people and very scientific, they think, well, we just plant trees and we grow them for timber, and who who cares what they look like? But I think everybody knows that from the post-war period, either it was logging and things like that in the US and Canada, or it was plantations in, in Britain, people started to, to, to get concerned about the visual impact and the visual effect of these activities on the scenery. People were getting cars, they could drive around and go for picnics and hiking. They looked at scenery, they were caring about scenery, um, and went to the time of the protection of scenery with national parks and this kind of thing. So my colleagues and I wanted to be able to teach foresters to understand landscape. And of course, if you talk to lots of scientists, they think, oh, this is not scientific. This is not um, objective. This is very subjective. It's all about taste and preference. Oh, it doesn't care. You know, um, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder and so on. So what we had to do was to come up with some methods, some means of explaining to foresters and engineers and others how to understand landscapes and how to understand visual composition. And visually, of course, is the, is the key thing because most of our perception is through our eyes. Yes, we use our ears, nose, mouth, and feeling and so on, of course, but it's largely through our, through our eyes. So we searched around and found various sources where people were presenting design principles for graphic designers or for art and things like this, and we put together a kind of vocabulary, which actually is essentially the same structure as the book is today. And so from the through the 80s, this was being developed, actually started in the 70s, I could say, even just before my time. And to the end of the 80s, I was thinking, you know, we need to do something with this. We have these handouts we give out to um, foresters. And I was also, interestingly, getting landscape architects who were interested in designing forests as part of their business, coming on these training courses, and, and we'd say to them, okay, we're going to present about design principles and things like this. Probably you know all about this, so don't worry about it. And they say, we don't know about this. We never got taught about this in university or college. Wow, this is so interesting. And that got me thinking, well, actually, there could be a market for this, not just in foresters and others, but actually for landscape architects. So I made a proposal to the publisher's of which Routledge is the latest sort of brand name within Taylor and Francis, and that was called ENFN Spawn. They were very famous for pre producing books about pricing of landscape architecture projects and things like that. And they were doing, doing books, and I approached them, and they said, wow, that sounds really interesting. So I took all the materials that we'd put together and wrote it up and illustrated it um, and found lots of pictures, and I was doing a lot of traveling around on holidays and other things, and had lots of pictures from all over the world, actually, which I could use for this, and produced the first edition back in about 1991. I think it maybe came out in 1993, according to the, uh, according to the book. And uh, it, it, it was pretty successful, actually, and uh, various landscape architecture programs started taking it up, and uh, I was quite happy with it, and so were the publishers. And it was mostly black and white and uh, with a few pages of color. And the design of it looks a bit tired nowadays, but uh, still it was, it was quite good. And then in 2003, four we decided to do a second edition. And then, um, so it's freshened up and uh, a new typeface and design and uh, some new materials were put into it. And then 
I thought a couple, three years ago, wow, it's about time it was uh, redone again because partly there were new, each time I did it, there were some new thoughts and ideas that came in. So the introduction and some of the content was updated with more theory, perhaps, and things like that. And this time around, I thought, well, it would make sense to uh, change the structure a bit. And so the, the final chapter, which if people look at the first and second editions, would find is a sort of implementation of the principles on some projects, but the projects got a bit old. I decided actually that given the interest in this sort of work for pedagogy purposes, there's actually a final chapter about teaching, reading the landscape, teaching, understanding and visual composition and so on would be, would be quite useful. And so I based that chapter on a description of the way I teach design uh, principles and reading the landscape to the first year undergrad students um, in Edinburgh. And it's illustrated with some examples of that. And in fact, I'll start uh, my teaching of that actually a week on Monday, um, late uh, February. So that's how it all came about. And uh, so it fits very much with my this background of wanting and training people, you know, wanting to teach people who don't know about design and who are not even designers by profession, but need to know about it from the point of view of making landscape decisions, which have an aesthetic impact. And so that's how it all came about. So, uh, yeah. Well, that answered my next question. It was, what was your motivation for writing this book? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the motivation wasn't money, of course. Um, the motivation was, I don't know, the thing that drives anybody to be, want to be a teacher, you know, you just, you want to, you want to impart knowledge, you know, uh, you, well, we want to, as, as landscape architects, we want to make the world better. Um, we want to, to keep it, um, attractive. Uh, we want to protect scenery. We want to protect aesthetic qualities in the landscape. It's not just about designing things being very functional and, and all of that. And it's not really also so much about style, even though style does come through. And of course, we can look at projects over the years where we can definitely see different styles, whether it's the sort of romantic times of the of the 18th, 19th centuries, or it's modernism or postmodernism or whatever, or it's the kind of uh, rustic sort of style of the US Park Service in the 1930s. Of course, you can see styles coming through, but fundamentally, it's about um, imparting to people this, this need to look after the landscape and to be aware of how important the visual aspect is and how important aesthetics are. We get a lot of our well-being from being in aesthetically pleasurable places. You know, We can make links of that with, with human health and well-being. So that's really uh, part of it. And then, well, that was the first of n- uh, numerous books and papers, of course, which I've uh, published since then. But I come back to that as being my first, my first book, and the one that I still have a lot of um, a lot of uh, affection for, you know, and uh, feel that it stood the test of time. So the principles in it didn't need to be changed very much. What I really did was update a lot of the uh, examples, freshen them up, but also get new ones from different countries, just to demonstrate the ubiquity and the universality of uh, the application from east and west and north and south. Um, and, of course, with the technology allowing us to uh, print in colour much more cheaply than it used to be the case, um, I was able to persuade the publishers to go for a full colour edition, which I think makes an enormous difference as well. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think that uh, for the design book, you have the front and then cover and everything. It's, it's beautiful. So I'm going to start with my first question. 
Well, I'm going to get that for the for our listening audience because they can't see the book. I can see the book. Uh, so I want to tell them how beautiful it is. Um, so what are, let's start with chapter one. What are the basic elements of design and why is that important? Well, what we have to understand is that when we're looking around us, uh, the world is, of course, constructed out of different objects, different elements of uh, of the landscape, which we can perceive visually. And uh, if we take the, um, the the basic structure, everything can be divided up into essentially one of um, four main um, dimensions, essentially, point, line, plane, volume. And so we can see things in the landscape as a point, uh, like a point of light or a tree on the horizon or a church spire on the horizon or something. We can see lots of lines, of course, edges of things aligned, roads aligned, rivers aligned, the horizon is aligned, the skyline is aligned, and these have different shapes and so on. And then we have uh, planes. So we have lots of planes, the surface of water as a plane, the surface of a square as a plane, the roof of a building as a plane, perhaps the surface of a, the, a wall is a plane. Um, and these, all these surfaces then are planes. And if we put planes together, we can start to get volumes. And that can be a solid volume like a block, like a big rock. Or um, a building is usually a solid volume view from outside. Or it can be internal spaces, like the space beneath the trees or the space enclosed by buildings, like in a narrow square, is a volume. So we can divide up everywhere and understand it as a combination of these kinds of basic elements. Uh, and that way it gives us a way of understanding the formal character, first of all, and then we can start to understand, you know, the structure of the space and the place. And we can also use that when we're designing to think about what kind of space, place, form, the use of lines and volumes and planes in actually composing a public space, for example, which might be a public square of flat paving onto which there are lines of edges and lines of trees, maybe, and points of benches and uh, volumes, which might be a larger building. So we can see how we can use all of these in, uh, in that compositional terms, you see? Yeah, I, I do see. And let me ask you, how do you teach your students these concepts? You teach it at Edinburgh, right? Yes. So I basically use the same contents as in the book, and the book is structured, for those who, who aren't looking at it, in, in a way that was done actually way back by my colleagues and I back in the early 80s. So we illustrate the concept, the point, by black and white abstract images of dots, you know, um, meaning points, like, you know, just to illustrate it like that in a very simple definitional way. And then we switch from the abstract into the real and show pictures of different scenes that I've collected in my travels, which really encapsulate that particular element. So in the book, I've got this marvelous picture that actually my wife took in Georgia, in the not, not Georgia in the USA, I should say, Georgia in the Caucasus, of mountainous landscape. And on the top of a foreground mountain is this beautiful medieval church in the middle of these huge mountains with nothing else constructed. And that church just draws the eye to it. And the position of that church in that vastness of that landscape just makes a fantastic image, but also super illustrates the point of a point in the landscape. 
So that way we can really define what these things are. And then when I take the students out into the landscape doing their sketching, then they have to use that and they have to annotate the sketches and say, well, that over there is the line of the horizon. That is a solid volume of a mountain. This is a plane of the water surface of the sea. That's the line of the coast. And they have to use this uh, language in the way they actually do their sketching and they actually pick that up in the use of their sketching techniques, you know, drawing lines and, 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 and trying to capture the form using shadows, things like that. Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, okay, I'm going to go on to the next chapter. Variables. What are what are variables? We've got a whole bunch of them. How do you use that in line, point, and plane? How does that all interplay? Right. So each of these basic elements uh, isn't just it by itself. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> a line is not just a line. It's made of something, and it has certain characteristics. So if we take a line being um, a road, then it has a certain width. It has a certain shape whether it's straight or meandering and curved, it has a certain texture depending on what it's made of, if it's asphalt or if it's gravel or if it's cobblestones. It'll have a certain colours depending on if it's black or white or red or whatever the stone is, is made out of. And, um, and things change over time. So um, the landscape changes according to different times. So time is a big variable here. Um, and it changes according to... The day, the light changes as the sun rotates and it changes according to the seasons and it changes according to death and decay and rebirth of trees, for example. Um, so you've got all of these different things. So you can see surfaces in terms of colors, textures. You can see volumes in terms of forms. Are they organic forms or are they geometric forms? And uh, uh, colors, uh, you know, if it's something's bright red or bright yellow, obviously there's different colors there. And all of these things then describe in further detail what these different um, elements are. And so, of course, you're going to have different elements of different, uh, different variations. Um, something can have a diff uh, you know, the shape, the color, the texture, its appearance and the different lights and so on can change over time. And uh, it's when you put all of these things together, which follows into the next chapter you're going to ask me about, that they all then have the composition, which then is the, is the kind of challenging part. But by understanding that, understanding what are the natural uh, colors, textures, forms, for example, of mountains, you know, you've got mountains that are angular and hard kind of feeling, um, and they may be black because they're made out of basalt, or they're white because they're made out of limestone, and they're angular because they've been eroded by glaciers or they're rounded because they've been eroded by water. So the, 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 the derivation of the elements also is kind of readable in, in how they look, you know? So it's all, all part of this understanding of the way in which each of these elements has its own unique character as a result of the combination of these variables that, uh, that play on it. Oh, yeah, that makes so much sense. And uh, I, I, one thing in particular I, I like to – what about color? How do you work with color in landscape design? Well, yeah, very, very interesting and very topical subject, this, because, firstly, when we go out in any particular landscape, it's going to have particular colors. So each, each landscape, wherever we go, has a palette of colors which are present in it, and it's going to be a combination – starting with the bedrock, 
or the or the surface geology if it's got deposits on it. So, like I was saying, you know, uh, basalt is black, slate is grey, limestone can be white or grey or yellow, uh, chalk is white, sandstone can be grey or yellow or red. Um, so the rock um, has an impact, and if the rock is used or it's visible in the landscape because it's protruding through, you know, the bedrock is showing through, or it's used in buildings. So, for example, the city of Edinburgh is sometimes referred to as a symphony of greys, partly because of the staining of the soot, but also because of the beautiful grey sandstone that comes from the quarry from which the new town of Edinburgh was built. Or you have other places which, which, which have very definite colours, the very golden limestone um, you might find in the Cotswolds in England, or where I'm from in Scotland, it's old red sandstone, which is this very rusty red colour. Um, and if you go around uh, other countries, you're going to get the same sorts of things. So that's the first point. Then, depending on your climate zone and the soils, you're going to get the vegetation. And that is also going to have certain colours, whether it's um, the grey greens of olive groves in, in the Mediterranean, or it's the, the dark greens of spruce and fir in the forests up on the Cascade Mountains, or it's the the gold and uh, scarlet um, of the maples and the oaks in the Appalachians in the fall. You know, so the vegetation gives all of these colours. Um, and then we can say that's the natural kind of colours that are in the landscape, which we can then work with and, and a part of its character, of course, and its personality. But then we can use colour in compositional terms, and this is where we need to understand colour theory. Um, Complementary colours, um, uh, similar colours, um, clashing colours, and uh, and and how they they're used, um, and often historically, certain colours have been used in certain places, and the interaction of colour with with light as well. So, if you're in a very strong light, for example, if you're down in Mexico or you're in the Mediterranean, in Italy or Greece or somewhere with very strong light, very bright colours, very strong colours work extremely well. You just think of the colours painted on Mexican houses and how how they uh, sing in the light of the of, of of the strong light. Whereas in the north, up in northern Europe or in northern the US or Canada or somewhere, the light is softer and it's lower. And bright colours really don't always stand out. And softer colours maybe work better just because of the, the quality of the light and the way it reflects and and all of it and casts the shadows. You know, the very dark shadows with really bluish tinge to them in, in very strong light, for example. And so then um, you can use colours, of course, to say things as well. And, and now it's getting very common to find colours associated with brands used in, uh, in urban design. And, and with new technology for paint, then people are painting things, painting surfaces, and using colours in a very dynamic way. Um, and actually fashion and style also come into that quite a lot. So they can be used in order to create mood, to create dynamism, to create things which are very subtle and very um, um, fitting and, and sympathetic and into the landscape where they're in. You know, so you maybe you want a house that fits the landscape. So you take very subtle colors based from the rock types, for example, or you use natural materials with the natural colors. Or you want to create something dynamic and bold. And therefore, you can use brighter contrasting colors. Um, some of which maybe are um, um, complementary harmonies, like red and green and uh, blue and orange and things like that. 
Oh, that it kind of reminds me of the the go uh, trophosphere and the blues and the yellows and the sun sunrise to sunset. How, how do you do like a visual analysis of a landscape before you start designing something for it? So one of the 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 ways is to well obviously spend time in it. Yes, take photographs, but also make sketches. And this is where going back to sketching is very very important because. We're so commonly using phones as cameras nowadays. People are taking millions of pictures all the time, but they're not really looking at the landscape. And you can see this all the time. People are going around, snap, 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 snap. Oh, here's a selfie. Here's a photo. And then they have millions of photographs that they've taken in their files. And what do they do with them? Do they look at them? Do they understand anything? Well, by taking, making sketches, we have to observe the landscape. If we want to say, well, the form of these mountains is this. Well, actually, drawing the form of the mountains, whether they're curving, whether they are angular, are they steep? Um, have they got different uh, textures according to the, um, the strata of the rock, for example? All of that, yes, is going to be visible in a photograph, but everything else is going to be visible at the same time. Whereas when you're drawing it, you can just draw the key things that stand out to you. These lines, these textures, the position of this vegetation, the line of this river, the edge of this lake, the position of these buildings, the shape of um, that woodland, and so on. And so by drawing, and just in black and white, actually, to start with, you can start to pick up these fundamental parts of the forms and the shapes and the, and the basic uh, elements and all of that together. And then you can actually collect other information by um, sampling the landscape, by taking photographs, or even collecting materials, actually. And this is a good thing to do for colour, is to collect materials, collect bits of stone and wood and vegetation, the things that are actually a, a bit like interior designers do when they do one of these um, these sheets, you know, where they pick up the, the carpet and the material for the curtaining and the colour for the walls and, uh, and the flooring. And you get this, like... Um, like sampling sheet. You can do that for, for colour as well. You can collect these materials. You can photograph them, of course, and you can get them. And all of that together, together with the vocabulary, applying the vocabulary that's in the book, describing the forms, shapes, colours, patterns, textures, etc. All of that is the way in which you capture the character. And then it allows you, by understanding and having this deeper analysis, being able to work with the landscape and saying, well, this is the, these are the colours I want to use or these are the forms that tell me how I should work with the landscape. And it's the kind of thing that, well, many um, well-known designers and architects have used very, very much. Think of Frank Lloyd Wright and Falling Water and the form of the water, the position of the building, the form of the buildings, all of these things, you know, that, that the form and the structure and the colours and everything is based on his interpretation of the landscape and rock strata and, and all of these kind of things, you know, not necessarily explicitly stated, but it's, it's nevertheless there. So that's the, the kind of method of really, of really um, going into it. And you haven't yet talked about chapter three, which is where it all kind of starts to come together. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. <laughs> that, well, that's where I'm going next. So <laughs> we got organization, objectives of design, diversity, spatial clues, structural elements, ordering. Okay, so what's next? <laughs> yeah. So once you've got these basic elements and, the, and we've got all of these different variations in form and texture and color and all the rest of it, how do they actually work together to form an actual composition that's out there? Or how do we use them to form a composition that's actually going to work, not just physically and functionally as if it's a landscape design, you know, like a, an urban plaza or something, but how is it going to work compositionally? Well, of course, artists um, would know these kinds of things if they've studied some of this, and art historians look at this and uh, you know, they look at the composition of paintings and they look at things like uh, the golden section and they look at the way that colours have been used and, and highlights and focal points and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't mean that we can't use that also in the landscape, although the landscape being three-dimensional and something we walk around and go through makes it a little bit more complicated. But we need to understand how these things work together. And the first batch of these, the objectives, are about balancing unity with diversity and spirit of place or genius loci. And that means that when we see a landscape that is really wonderful, you know, like going to some national park and you're looking at the scene and you're thinking, oh my God, how fantastic that is. Chances are that landscape has um, a huge degree of unity that all the parts of that landscape, in part because it's all like naturally formed, if it's a national park, come together the forms work together somehow. The colours work together because they're all coming from this natural background. There's a level of diversity, which means the landscape's not boring and we lose interest in it, nor is it chaotic and so busy we can't make any sense of it. And this thing about whether it's simple or busy actually comes out also in aesthetic theory about preference for landscapes, that if something's not very interesting because it's bland, we lose interest in it. And, and if it's too uh, fussy and busy, then we can't make any visual sense out of it. It's not a legible landscape or a coherent landscape. So we balance those things. And then the other thing is this genius loci, this spirit of place, which, well, of course, it goes back to uh, Roman times when the Romans thought that there were spirits in places like a nymph at a waterfall or a spirit in a grove of trees or in a grotto or cave or something. And then that was re... re um, resurrected, we could say, I suppose, by people in the early landscape design movement in, in England, like um, um, like William Kent, um, who was, who was uh, written about by the poet William Pope, who talked about consult the genius of the place in all. And this genius loci, this spirit of the place, is that which gives somewhere its particular personality and sets it aside from somewhere else. And we always know it or recognize it without being necessarily able to pin it down. So um, these are the things which we can understand the, the theory of and then recognize and use in a design. So if somewhere is completely chaotic and structureless, and one thing that often brings to my mind is, is a typical 
strip mall development in the in a city in the US, you know, you drive in into the from the outskirts into a city, and along this street there are motels, fast food joints, used car sales places, all sorts of stuff. There's 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 um, electricity cables all chaotic. There's big signs all around, and the whole place is a complete mishmash of things that really don't fit together, all vying for your attention as you're driving along. And that's where we've got too much diversity and absolutely no unity and, of course, zero uh, spirit of place. But if you go to somewhere, let's say, I don't know, let's say Venice, you've got a fantastic spirit of place just because of Venice is this unique place with this incredible history. But the buildings all have this wonderful harmony of form, proportion. Of course, it's Renaissance and, and everything. Uh, the colours of the paints and things that are used on it. So there's incredible unity, but also variety. Not everything is the same. There's all this wonderful variety that, that brings it to life. If it was very monotonous, like some sort of Soviet city, all grey, monotonous, repeated buildings that would have strong unity, but absolutely no diversity and uh, not really any spirit of place either. So that's very important. And, and uh, by understanding that, by, um, by looking at places that are there, uh, we can read them in that way, and then we can use that in our design to make sure that what we put together in a design works, that it's harmonious in that sense, that all the different elements, the paving, the trees, the benches, the fountain, the shelters, whatever, all have perhaps similarity of form, um, similarity of colour, but enough variety to make it a lively, interesting sort of place. So that's that first batch. Then how do we organize things actually to create that sense of unity and, uh, and, and master that degree of diversity? So the first thing is about how things are spaced and placed in space. And if they are close together, we see them as a group, or if they're wide apart, if they have um, um, uh, density, something, uh, yeah, you, you have these kind of patterns and things like that. So... Um, if there's a uniform, um, a continuity um, in the way that they are distributed, um, I'm just trying to think off, off the top of my head what some of these ones are from memory. Um, and so we can see how things are placed in space and then how they're structured. And this is where things like balance and proportion and scale come in. And yes, actually, the, the things like uh, the golden section which some people think, oh, it's a very you know, formalistic way and ah, we don't have to follow that. But actually, there have been analyses of, of nature and natural forms that demonstrate that actually the golden section, the ratio of the golden section, 1 to 1.618, actually is found in all sorts of natural forms like spirals and sunflowers and, uh, and um, all sorts of um, things in, uh, in, in nature. So actually, there are fundamental proportions which are found and which somehow we have this um, like association with. We kind of somehow recognize them. Um, so working with all of that. So, for example, scale is very important. And uh, some places are very are too big scale. You know, you can find um, public spaces. And they did this in China a lot. They overscaled them. So you're feeling like lost in this massive public space where the scale is just too big. It feels very uncomfortable. And not enclosed enough, and not um, not at a human scale, you know. And the proportion of things, you know, gigantic statues like whatever Saddam Hussein in Baghdad before they pulled it down, gigantic overscale statues, 
and, and, and huge different proportions and so on. So all of these things actually become something you, you work with. And by making design sketches, not sketches of the landscape, but sketches of the landscape as it is, but of course the design process of drawing the landscape and understanding this and getting a feel for the proportion and the colours and the way they all work together, I think is very important as the process of design. And often I think there's too much of, of designing something in plan quite often and maybe a few sections and then visualising it by putting it into AutoCAD and then putting it into SketchUp or Rhino or uh, some of these programmes like this to produce these super realistic um, images of what the place will look like. And then nobody really looks and says, wait a minute, that's completely out of scale and those colours are all wrong and why is it like this? And not using it as a sort of a test bed. So this is where these these um, these organisational um, elements come together. Um, otherwise, everything can be, you know, individually interesting, but put them together and it is a complete mess. But get them together in a way that just comes to life, um, and and everybody will look at that and say, "Oh, wow, what a fantastic place! Oh, I really want to be there. Oh, it's so comfortable. It looks so fantastic." Um, and yes, it's going to be functional. It's going to achieve everything the um, the, uh, the organisers or the commissioners wanted, but it's going to have that something else that just makes it uh, unique and special. And I think we recognise that. But what makes it so, and that's why this analysis process is very necessary, using these these uh, elements and and these uh, descriptive language. Oh yeah, I think you hit as we say over here. The, the, you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. <laughs> That that's it. Uh, that's that's how to do it. Uh, so let me ask you in chapter four. So how are you going to teach? Uh, how do you teach your students in Edinburgh how to uh, to read the landscape uh, in your chapter four? What do you, what is your methodology? Well, I start out um, giving them getting them the fundamentals of how the landscape is actually created, and I mean created by tectonic movements, earth movements, glaciation, volcanism, rivers, coastal processes. So they get a lot to start with of geology, geography, climate, soils, all of this stuff. So this understanding, you know, how the world came to be. And when they're out there in Edinburgh, which is a fantastic city to, to, to teach this, I should, uh, I should mention, because Edinburgh is built on the remains of a Carboniferous era volcano 340 million years ago. And Arthur's Seat, which is this iconic hill in the middle of Edinburgh, well, small mountain, is one of these volcanic cones. And Edinburgh was also built on seven hills, like Rome is built on seven hills, but they're all volcanic remains. And so you have this incredible uh, volcanic under understructure, substructure of, of the city. And the city is then built on and responds to this geological foundation. By the way, the old town of Edinburgh, the Royal Mile, the famous Royal Mile from the castle down to Holyrood Palace, is on a, um, a crag and tail, one of these uh, geological features caused by the glaciers as it went as the glacier went around the volcanic plug of Edinburgh Castle and then left the tail uh, uneroded um, down, downstream from that. And all these open spaces in Edinburgh are the result of all of these hills being left as parks, for example. So Edinburgh is a fantastic landscape laboratory for teaching these things. So once the students understand all of that, and then I lecture them about how we perceive landscapes, um, 
what preference comes from, and I get them to look at a whole series of, uh, of, of, of landscapes from around the world, and I have to rate them for preferences, and then we say, well, why do you prefer this one like this, or why do you prefer that one like that? So they understand how their views and the views of their colleagues all come together. And then I take them through these elements of visual design. And then I use another of my books, Landscape Pattern, Perception and Process, which you can also get from Routledge. And the second edition of that came out in 2012, which explores landscape from the point of view of a series of patterns, which brings it to perception and how we actually see the world around us and how those patterns come from geology and uh, ecology and uh, culture, human activities to create the landscape around us and how dynamic the world is of these different uh, things, ranging from geological time scales to uh, very short time scales. And by understanding all of that, they then get the building blocks for going out and looking at landscapes. And at the same time, they are introduced to this technique of sketching of this very economical, quick sketches, just using lines and, and, and shading and so on, with pencils or possibly oil bar and graphite sticks. And, um, and then we go out on a series of uh, trips where we actually go to certain places and they have to draw the landscape. And then we say, okay, what are we looking at? And say, right, what's the geology here? And what are these stones? And they say, uh... Uh, what kind of rock is this? Uh, is it sedimentary? And, uh, you know, they're tentatively trying to find what the answer is when they're faced with it in reality. And we have Edinburgh as a wonderful uh, teaching area and the area to the east of there called East Lothian, which has a wonderful coastline with all sorts of, again, um, sedimentary and metamorphic and volcanic features and land cover and ecology and coastal processes and all of this. So we, we have a, a, a place which really has all of these things there that we can go out and we can show them. They have to draw it. They have to describe it. They have to answer questions about it. They have to record it as annotations and so on on their drawings. And they also have to write an essay, which is about somewhere that they know. So they have to take a place. And since we have a lot of foreign students, we get them from all over the place. And they have to take a landscape, not a region and not a site, but a landscape. And they have to uh, research into it. <clears throat> and they have to understand the geology, the geomorphology, the hydrology, the climate, the soils, the ecology, the cultural layers, and uh, explain how it's all come to be with proper references uh, from scientific and uh, good quality information and journals and uh, uh, textbooks. And then they have to illustrate that with maps and sketches and sections and photographs and so on. And also, you know, bring it all together. So by all of this, they have to do it by practice. Of course, they get the, the information told to them. The books are there for them to refer to. But in the field and by their own research is how then that teaching is um, consolidated uh, into them. And then when they're going into their next projects in the following year, because this is done in the second semester of, uh, of their first year, so it's this semester right now, and they're kind of getting into that right right away with a with a fantastic geologist actually teaching them all of that stuff who really knows these areas and and can really get them they have to do field work with him as well and uh, somebody else is doing the teaching who's really an excellent uh, drawing teacher uh, and then I'm doing sort of it all mixed together and um, 
And so then when they, they start doing their, their next projects into the next year, one of the, the first ones they do is actually a planning project where they, they have to take a, an area, quite a substantial area, and they do a lot of ecological planning, but they have to understand the way the landscape's character is built up, looking at the layers of the geology and the geomorphology and the hydrology and the climate and the soils and distinguish the landscape into areas of different character and pick up the aesthetic and the visual aspects of this in their description of the character using the terminology. So it's all then, it's consolidated and, and, and it's brought into the teaching in, the next, uh, in, their, in their second year. Oh, well, this, uh, this is just a, a complete book yeah. for the class. I would yes. love to take that class. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and together with uh, the other book I've just uh, promoted on here, um, and uh, yeah, so 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 that's um, how it's all kind of put together, and and it goes back to those early days of working in the big landscape in the forests, having to understand, of course, the landscape that you're dealing with about planting forests, having to understand the uh, ecology and the climate and the soils and the geology when you're actually doing your forestry activities, and then bringing to bear that with uh, this this design part. So. All that back experience that I had, you know, starting out as a forester to convert into a landscape architect and working in those in real landscapes. You know, I could say I, I, I learned real landscape design, not just designing the kind of gardens, small public spaces and things like this, which we call landscape design. But it isn't really working in proper landscapes, you know, um, in, in, in the landscape rather than a site. And I think that's where that different perspective and background actually comes to bear on this. And that's why I think maybe I, I and my colleagues, we saw it that bit differently from maybe how it comes when you maybe do your early courses in landscape architecture at um, undergrad level and you're faced with a small site. And the first thing you have to do is to say, OK, here's a garden. Let's design a garden or something because you're just starting out. And often you start with the very small scale things. And you don't have the chance, maybe, to, um, to to cut your teeth on on the bigger scale landscape, which is really, I think, the, the more important thing, because everything then is coming down from the big scale down to the small scale, and not from the small scale up to the big scale. Oh yeah, that totally makes sense. Well, I, I have another question for you. You talked about Venice, Italy, and how it all is harmonious. Can you give another example or two of what you would consider a well designed landscape? It could be urban garden. Your choice. Well, um, of course, if you go into some of these um, early or um, well-known uh, designed landscapes, I mean, th there is a, a form of art, which is parks and gardens and uh, the larger designed landscapes, of which, of course, we have many in Europe, but, but also there are ones in, uh, in Asia of, of course, completely different styles. And I think one of uh, this particular place where you can find this kind of harmony is if you go to Kyoto in Japan and you walk down the path of, path of philosophy and you call in the different temples and the different shrines, temples being Zen Buddhist and shrines being Shinto. If you go to some of those where they've got the, the, the balance between the, the, the building, the, maybe there's like a pagoda building there and um, a pond, um, rocks, raked gravel, moss, pruned trees. This is where there's a certain aesthetic uh, vocabulary, which is purely Japanese, um, and which is 
super harmonious and unified and also brings out this very strong genius of the place. Um, and, uh, and, and, and where you've got these particular ones with um, the, the, the sea of gravel that's been raked and then you have these rocks like islands in the sea or like mountains coming out from the sea. And this is all very symbolic and very metaphorical. But the composition of those spaces, the positioning of those rocks, the raking of the gravel, all of these things are just fantastically well composed in that way. So there's another kind of uh, example. And then if we go to Persian gardens, but also Persian cities, and I was lucky enough to go to uh, Esfahan in, um, in Iran some years ago before all the current problems. and. Uh, that is a fantastic uh, city, but there's this, um, this square um, in, in, the, in the center of it. Um, and one end of the square is a huge mosque with fantastic um, tiled uh, domes and so on in these beautiful azure blues and things. And then at the other end is the entrance to the bazaar, which is this fantastic warren of all these internal streets and stalls and shops and so on. And either side of it along the middle, and one side is the the women's mosque, and on the other side is a, is a palace for guests. And you can climb up the palace and stand on a terrace and see this, this square, the Nach-Nach-Jahan. I'm not very good at pronouncing it. And it's amazing because the proportions of this square, which is surrounded by a colonnaded, arcaded shops and things like this, is actually wonderfully proportioned. And they even the architect even built a, like a fake colonnade on top of the, um, the 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 rows of shops to get the height of the surrounding buildings proportionate to the width of the space, so that everything is like perfectly harmonious. And it's also very symbolic with the with the mosque at one end and the palace and all of the, all of this. And in in it, it's also made of this like sand coloured bricks. And in Esfahan, while there's lots of parks and a wonderful uh, uh, Persian gardens and so on, they've protected this. It's a, it's a World Heritage Site by not allowing buildings that are higher than the, the um, um, silhouette of the city. So you don't disturb this perfect silhouette. And all buildings have to have a proportion of their structure made of these sand-colored bricks, which unifies all the buildings together in this harmonious whole. So they've actually been very clever in maintaining um, the unity of the city, even though, it's, of course, it's been modernized and there's buildings and things like this going on, and also protecting the perfect proportions of the Nagzeshahan Square, which um, are, is really, again, one of these kind of wonders of the world in, in, in design terms. Oh, wow. I'm going to have to go look that up on Google now. Yes. Um, well, uh, Simon, thank you so much for being here today. I know we've taken up a lot of your time, and, and I so appreciate it. This has been very uh, informative, interesting, and a delight to have you here. Uh, can you tell our audience, what are you working on now? Well, actually, um, there are three books on the go, all with Routledge, but they're all edited books. They're not my own um, individual one. So one book that is at the publishers at the moment in production is called, um, if I get the, the order of it correctly, uh, Place, Pedagogy and Play. And it's about um, researching with and for children. 
And it's the result of some PhD students and uh, my PhD students and, and some others um, and our work in the Open Space Research Centre at the University of Edinburgh, where we're concerned about health and well-being and this kind of thing. And it's all about how to do research for children with children about children's spaces, schools, play spaces, the bigger environment and so on, because we think this is extremely important to make sure that, um, that children are getting enough play and getting the right sort of spaces. They're, they're living so much in, um, in screen time and indoors nowadays, and they're losing physical activity and fitness. And you might have come across the, the wonderful book by Richard Louvre called The Last Child in the Woods, which is about this problem of children getting this, what he calls nature deficit disorder. So that's one book. The second book is completely different, and it's the result of a research project about modernism and the rural environment. We think of modernism in modern architecture or modernization of things as being very urban, but actually vast areas of the countryside and rural areas were affected in the sort of the heyday of modernism from the 1920s, let's say, to the 1980s or so or, or whatever, under fascism, under communism, and under colonialism and things like this. And we've been studying this with an international group and um, discovering really that it's a, a, an amazing amount of the, the rural landscapes of Europe and to some extent uh, we, we're focusing on Europe and, uh, and a bit on the Middle East, uh, but elsewhere have been affected by modernism in all its various forms. And we often think of rural areas as very traditional and uh, value them for the traditions, traditional buildings and traditional layouts of fields and things like this. But huge areas have been affected by modernization. So that's, that's an edited book as well, with quite a lot written by architects and art historians and landscape architects. And then the third one, which goes off in again in another completely different direction, is a result of a big project that's coming to a conclusion at the end of uh, June called Blue Health, which is about how to maximize the health and well-being benefits of blue spaces. There's a lot of work gone on about green spaces in, in urban conditions and the health and well-being benefits of being in the green spaces for physical exercise and mental well-being and social well-being and so on. But blue spaces are very, very important. Most cities are built on water of one sort or another, coastal cities, river cities, lake cities. Um, and we've often turned our back on that water. We've, we've um, made it inaccessible. We've, we've covered over rivers. Um, we've put docks and ports and um, other things there that we can't get to it. But there's been a big renaissance in the way that we uh, are re rediscovering water and bringing people back to water and how can we maximize the health and well-being. So we're producing a, a, a book which is all really about how to translate the evidence of the benefits of well-being into practice through a lot of different um, designers' tools that we've prepared um, as part of the project about evaluating blue spaces and evaluating the use of blue spaces. And then we are collecting, or we have collected, a whole series, about 180 examples of top-level projects which have been implemented about blue spaces around the world, gleaned from projects that have won prizes like ASLA awards, or have been competition winners, or have been written up cri uh, critically in Topos magazine and things like that, and um, we're presenting them as uh, as inspirational uh, exemplars of how to design blue spaces. So that's what that book's going to be um, about. So that's um, 
that's what I'm up to. And um, I'm not exactly short of work right now. <laughs> you were very busy. It took us a little bit to uh, coordinate this interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we're both busy. Um, well, again, I'd like to thank you for being here today. And uh, for our audience, this was Simon Bell. And this book is The Elements of Visual Design in Landscape, third edition by Routledge in 2020. And again, I'm Tricia Kaffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for the New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network with this special mini-series in landscape architecture. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And thanks for being here. And thanks for having me.